Hey everybody, before we get into my interview with Brian Stillman, director of Plastic Galaxy, I just want to let you know about our sponsor. It's a film called Sir John A. and the Curse of the Annie Quenched. It's about two brothers that save the town of Kingston from demons by staying drunk. Uh, it stars John Dunsworth from Trailer Park Boys, Spenny from Kenny vs. Spenny, and a bunch of other really funny Canadians. You can check it out on iTunes, Amazon, or wherever you get your movies. Check out curseoftheanniequench.com. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Kind of a DeLorean? Welcome to the Raiders of the Lost Commentary Podcast. Welcome to Jurassic Park. The unofficial commentary for your favorite... Death of the Chopper! ...and not-so-favorite films. The famous comedian, Arnold Braunschweiger. Starring your hosts, Adam and Matt. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Start your movie... In three, two, one. Hey, everybody. We have a very special episode this week. I have filmmaker Brian Stillman, and today we're watching his film Plastic Galaxy, the story of Star Wars toys. How are you today, Brian? I am doing well. Thanks for having me. This yeah. is this is really cool. Yeah. So uh, I met you in uh, Pensacola at the Pensacon Film Festival, which I had never been to and never heard of until a film I made got into the film festival. And, uh, yeah, we were looking for things to do one day and we saw your film and we were very interested, uh, my sister and I, and checked it out and got chatting. And so we're here doing, uh, a podcast now. So, um, I was just curious, like where the, inf the, uh, inspiration came to make this doc. Like, did you know a lot of people? Did you have a lot of these toys growing up? Uh, just talk us through that. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up like most people my age. I grew up with Star Wars. Um, I saw, I saw, I saw the original uh, New Hope when it came out uh, in a re-release in like 1979 or so. Um, and I only remember this. Like I have these vague sort of recollections, but my dad confirmed that he did take me to see it. So it's not just like weird false memories or something. And then I saw all the others in the theater uh, when they first ran. Um, you know, I, I had all the toys as a kid. Um, they were a big part of my life. And like most people, as I got older, I kind of sold them all off and got into other things. And I got back into Star Wars, um, I don't know, sometime around like uh, 2008, 2009. I don't know, something like that, 2010. It's hard to right. remember at this point. Right, right. Um, I got back into Star Wars, and I'm one of those people who loves digging into the story of things as a collector. Um, I'm a journalist by trade. It's sort of what I do. And... It occurred to me there were no movies made about this. You know, I looked around, couldn't find anything, was really surprised by that. So I figured I'd just do it myself. You know, it, it seemed like uh, a good way to learn as much as I could and then also kind of get invited to people's houses to see amazing collections and then meet some of the people who, who created these toys, some of the Kenner designers and stuff. Yeah, it's true what you say. Like, there's like a small bit about the toys in like the making of Star Wars, if you buy like the special edition Blu-ray DVD combo thing, and they mention all this cool stuff, these toys, and this like uh, empty box thing that went on, but it's like it's over within like five minutes, and you're left wanting more. And I think that's what your film does so well is like it goes right into that stuff you want to know all about the toys, these geeky things. I, like like you, um, I had. I had more Lego Star Wars toys. And so going back through recently some old Star Wars Lego stuff and just like also the price value of some of these things. Like we were looking up like a original like Luke Skywalker with a snowspeeder 
It's worth like $80 now. I think I bought it at Kmart for like five back in the day, you know? It's funny. You say back in the day. We you know, two- back in the day for me, none <laughs> of this stuff even existed. It was it was the action figures. That was it. You know, Lego at that point, Lego didn't do any licensing. Um, they were very proud of the fact they didn't do any licensing. Uh, the very first thing they licensed was Star Wars. Um, but that wasn't until, I mean, I guess the prequel era. Yeah, um, I'm guessing the early 90s is when I would have been buying Lego as a, as a kid. So, yeah, the closest I came were the original Lego um, space sets, the blue and gray sets. Oh. And I just had to kind of pretend that they were like <laughs> Luke and all them. Yeah. And uh, everybody was smiling. Every face had a smile on it and they were all yellow. Um, uh. That was it. <laughs> so uh, you whippersnappers, you don't know how good you have it. I guess so. Yeah, we have a, like the most amazing <laughs> Star Wars toys now for Lego anyways. Absolutely. Uh, so, um, so you worked as a, a journalist early on. Uh, you worked for Guitar World, correct? Yeah, I was... Uh, I was a editor and a writer at Guitar World magazine, and then I helped them launch a magazine called Revolver, ah, which I was like that. a hard yeah. pop music magazine. I, I was the managing too. editor. Yeah, I was managing editor at Revolver, did a lot of writing for them. So I was with the magazines for maybe 10 years, and then uh, freelanced after that for them for a little while before really shifting over to broadcast and uh, this type of work full time. Yeah, so that's... Uh... Like you would have th- thought, like with your background with music, you would have went into doing some type of doc work with bands and musicians. But I guess just always in the back of your head, you had Star Wars and toys kind of kicking around. Well, or I've always been into toys and pop culture and collecting. You know, before Star Wars, um, before I got back into Star Wars, um, I'd spent many, many years. I still do uh, collect old toy robots and stuff from the. 40s, 50s, and 60s coming oh, out of Japan, cool. uh, and then all the old Buck Rogers stuff and Flash Gordon. So that's always been sort of an interest of mine, uh, mid-century science fiction. You know, I read a lot of it um, and, and stuff like that. Um, I collect a lot of old pulp artwork, original art, you know, paintings and drawings and stuff from the old pulp magazines. I collect movie props and TV props. I have a lot of Star Trek props and things like that. You've invested um, yes, a lot I- in shelves, I'm guessing. <laughs> Oh, yes. Ikea. <laughs> Ikea should name a wing after me at this point. It's ridiculous. Heading ridiculous. There, putting together. But that's the thing. All that stuff came together, you know, for the film work that I do. Um, here's the thing. I'd been covering music for so long. I'd interviewed. I, I can't even tell you how many bands I've interviewed, how many stories about music I've written um, that I kind of didn't feel like I had much else to say on the subject. Um, particularly when so many other people were doing so much good work in those areas. It's not like there's, you know, a dearth of music related documentaries and stuff out there. Um, I just talked to this guy that I met recently who just finished and just released, uh, he's on the festival circuit doing a documentary about ska, you know, nineties, nineties ska. So second and like third wave ska, um, mostly. And so it's just like there's so much good music journalism out there that I kind of, you know, it just it wasn't where I wanted to devote my creative energies at that point. That's yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, so with like having like journalistic back background and you decide uh-huh. to do, a, you know, Star Wars toys film, do you start writing like an outline of what you want to do uh-huh. in the film or do you just start uh-huh. finding people to interview and, and worry about it later or? It's a little of both. I, you know, I'd been doing news 
for a few years before I started working on this movie. Um, so I was used to doing one minute, two minute, three minute pieces. Um, everything from, you know, building just exploded will get you the news to longer feature pieces about artists and stuff. So for those, I never really tackled a documentary as long as this. I'd done like a 30 minute piece um, early on that I kind of winged my way through. The, so for this the, uh, lightsaber thing, I read that no, no, on. no, that was that I'd done as part of this um, that I'd done. So no, I'd done something on designer toys, like the vinyl toy, like urban toy market. Okay. Um, and, you know, whatever. It, it was OK. It, it wasn't bad. It could have been better. I didn't know quite what I was doing, so I was winging it. Um, but for this, um, I, I wasn't exactly sure how best to approach it. So I kind of did a ton of research. You know, I was collecting also. So I was talking to everybody I knew about these things. I was trying to get names. This I was is, trying to. This is for research. You probably kept buying toys like it's for research oh, yeah, for the doc. Of course. <laughs> Um, and the greatest moment for me, my, my kind of apotheosis was when my accountant was like, well, you know, you can write off all the toys that you're buying. I'm assuming you're doing that. And I was like, what? <laughs> and my wife, I look over next to me and my wife is just sitting there with her head in her hands. And I was like, I am unchained. <laughs> We're it going to Ikea to buy more shelves. Yeah. Um, but, but so, so to, to answer your question, I mean, you start, you do research, you just do as much research as you can and you try and get a sense of what the overall story is. Um, and that I did. But then the little details and stuff that really comes out when you do interviews. So you do a lot of pre-interviews. You talk to a lot of people early on uh, over the phone just to try and figure out what they know, what's worth putting on camera. And then you just start doing it. You just start booking flights and, and scheduling interviews and finding all these people and talking to them. Yeah, it's, it must have been kind of a daunting task in the beginning, just starting with like zero contacts in that <laughs> world. And then well, I didn't I didn't have zero contacts. I made a lot of friends early on um, because of my collecting background. You know, I kind of dove in um, and, and quickly sort of swam towards the deeper end of the pool. Um, uh, so I met a lot of higher end collectors early on because they were collecting the stuff that I found really interesting. Um, and they were the ones who were digging into the history in a way that I found really interesting. Okay. So I, I met them early on and they were able to, um, kind of introduce me around and, and get me into some of those, uh, in with some of those people who could really get to the answers that I was looking for and the information I was looking for, uh, to make the movie. That's great. So did you just, like, did you plan like a few weeks? Like, okay, I'm going to fly all across the States and, <laughs> no, or did you no. film this over a couple of years or? It took, it took me a while. It's funny. When I first started, my early math was, um, well, okay, I do a three minute piece in a day, maybe two, you know, I go out, I shoot, I write the thing, I come back, I edit it. So if three minutes, you know, or I'll be generous, let's say two minutes takes me a day of work for news. Well, then a... 60 minute documentary should maybe only take me 30 days. That was <laughs> the worst math in the world. Um, I could not have been more wrong. Uh, it took me, it took me about three and a half years to make this thing. Um, because you know, you're working a day job at the same time cause you got to yeah. pay for it. Yeah. Um, I did very little crowdfunding for it. I did some towards the end or towards the middle yeah, um, and raised noticed... a little bit of but yeah, I noticed not that we can chat about the Kickstarter too, too later if you want. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, 
my experience with Kickstarter has changed dramatically with subsequent movies. Like I've learned a lot since then, but it was all, it was mostly out of pocket to make this thing. And, um, and then I edited it myself, you know, <laughs> for good or bad, I edited it myself. And, and that took a lot longer cause it's just editing a documentary is grueling work. Yeah, it's arduous. It is yeah. really hard. And you know, it, it just took me forever. Uh, much longer than I wanted it to. Did but, you try uh, like transcribing yeah. like the interviews like with text or anything? Like I've heard of uh, doc guys like interviews like, okay, I'm going to group all the talk about this thing in these yeah. folders. Or did you, that's, I've also no, heard that's what I did. them like um, typing it all out, like get, getting like a um, subtitle type program to just write out yeah, scripts no, so with at it. The, at the time that was pretty expensive to get it done, to get it all transcribed. So what I would do is I would by hand, I'd watch each clip and I'd name each clip, you know, like, you know, Steve Sansweet, uh, 001, Steve Sansweet, 002, 003, 004. And I would write down as briefly as I could the gist of what they're talking about. So Steve Sansweet, 001, um, the initial deal. Steve Sansweet 002, more initial deal, you know, whatever. Yeah. I have these huge notes now filled with all these notes. And the way I like to work, I will draw all over them. I will like draw arrows leading from this to that and be like, oh, those go together. Like that'll work great together. Um, and I, uh, you know, I would organize in my editing program. I would take all those clips and I'd group similar clips together uh, in folders. So, you know, Sansweet 001 through 005 would be grouped with Gus Lopez 021 through 028 because they're both talking about the same thing, whatever. And I'd name the folder whatever it is they're talking about. But at the same time, I tend to work very like like physically in the sense that like I'll like draw little stars next to things and letter them and draw arrows all over the place. It looks like when you see the movies where like the conspiracy theorist is like, <laughs> you know, attaching everything together yes, with yes. string and clearly going crazy. That's what these notebooks look like. That's how the film um, was edited. Basically, you know, that's the thing. Um, and it was a way for me to kind of visualize what the hell was going on with all this footage that I had. And I had a ton of footage. Yeah, I can, um, way too much. <laughs> did it <laughs> way I, overshot? Even though you had like a lot of footage, did it feel like you were ever done filming the doc? Like, did you? Did, was there ever? Was there a point where you said, "Okay, I have enough," but there's also this guy and this guy that have all these other cool toys that we can film? Did you like? Um, there's always there's always more, but you do reach a point where you say, "Okay, I, I feel like I can tell the story," um, and you you do you start putting it all together, and then you just hope that, um, you know, you have enough and you don't have to go back, you know? Oh, so I just want to say, because we're watching this movie here. Yes. This is Lisa Stevens. She owns a company called Paizo Publishing, which is a role-playing game company. They published a game called Pathfinder. Before that, she was in charge of the Star Wars um, magazine, like fan club magazine. So she did a lot. Um, Her collection is off the hook. Those little cards she was showing off, those were the original mock-ups for the early bird membership, like the early bird set membership cards that you would get when you bought the early bird envelope. Um, And they had names on it like 
Steve Sansweet, and like all these other people. So those are crazy cool. The other thing I want to say, so this is Gus Lopez right here. Behind him is a model of the Death Star. And I always tell people that's the coolest thing they'll ever see. You can see it right here, that model of the Death Star. It's the actual well, one, right? Or that's A1? It. That, no, it is it. That is the prop. When they say that's no moon, that's a space station, and they point to a big floating ball in the sky, that is it. And it's sitting in his living room under a giant piece of plexiglass. Wow. Which look, one did they blow me, up like, You can see me reflected a little bit in it. Because uh, <laughs> you're just drooling looking at yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> and and, well, no. it's uh, The way I had to set up the camera, there was no way to get me out of the reflection. So I've oh, kind of tough. wrapped myself in my black hoodie and all this stuff to try and minimize it. The reflection. Um, I've yeah. since figured out how I could have shot it to have prevented that. But... Uh, yeah, whatever. Hindsight is twenty twenty with a lot of that, right? <laughs> but yeah, anyone watching this, when when they're done with this, they should go back and pause it and just stare at that thing because that is the Death Star. So what it's did crazy. they blow up then in the in the? They shot? blew up a different. They blew up a uh, a different model. They blew up. Um, it's usually called a pyro model. They spend a lot less money on it. Ah, so they I see. Up. But Fair that enough. one, uh, that thing is it. And if you run the back. Uh, the back quarter of it is cut away so they could run lighting into it, fiber optics. Oh, and stuff. that made that would make and sense. And then they ran to every single one of those little windows that's on the Death Star. It's amazing um, the what ILM did with just like teaching you scale with models because there was no real precedent for that before that. No, well, there were. I mean, there were a lot of people doing model work where ILM's real revolution was was the use of motion controlled cameras for shooting all the space stuff. Yeah. Um, in the past, you'd what you'd have, let's say you had a, a two spaceships chasing each other. So first you have the first spaceship and it moves across the screen. Then you have to have the second spaceship and you film it separately, also moving across the screen, or across the camera, I should say. And then you would try and mat those together and hope that they synced up and looked good together. And had no matte well, lines or anything like there that. There is nothing, yeah. yeah. So what they do with the motion-controlled camera is they hold, they program into the camera uh, movement so that the camera moves, the ship stays in the same place. So by programming that in and using a computer to move the camera, you give the illusion of the ship moving, and then you can repeat it as many times as you want. So you do it the first time with whatever the first ship is, you know, let's say a TIE fighter. Yeah. Then you do it with the second time, you, you swap out the TIE fighter, put in the X-Wing, and you can repeat that movement as many times as you need to so you know it's going to sync up when you mat everything. Yeah. Um, so that was the real revolution for ILM, I think. Um, did you? And then, of course, they were just really good at what they did. Yeah, that's the other thing. Did you consider talking to anybody from ILM just because they had built a lot of the <laughs> props and... That's no, what the toys it, were based off of in, in some sense? Uh, not really. Um, at the time, it seemed too difficult to try and find them. And I had access to the toy, some of the toy designers anyway, you know, a few of them anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I felt like, you know, like this guy, Jim Swearingen, he was telling me that, you know, they had a couple photos for from the movies and they could go to a screening and they took photos in the screening, but they didn't. They didn't get a ton of material, and they didn't often get to go hang out with ILM. I think he went once or twice to hang out with ILM. And, Interesting. Um, so they were working off very limited uh, limited production material and reference material. Yeah. And they did the best they could with it, but that's why you get some slightly weird designs. You know, you get a blue, tall snaggletooth, or you get a uh, TIE fighter with fins like the 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 veins on the side are the wrong shape 
because yeah. <laughs> they only had one reference photo and it didn't give them quite enough information. So, you know, they, they certainly did the best with what they could and they did a great job. But yeah, uh, definitely. They're a little disconnected from ILM, as uh, I understand. Yeah. So when you book one of these interviews and you're heading in, do you have like a set of questions like you're coming in like sure. yeah, I, I need this, this and this to piece this together for this part of the doc? Or do you go in kind of cold and, and no, 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 you always out or you use your pre-interviews to help figure out what you want to ask each person. Um, so I'll talk to these people, you know, whoever I'm interviewing, I get them on the phone for anywhere from half an hour to two hours. I'll, I'll figure out what they know and I'll figure out what, where I want to go with them in terms of the interviews. I'll get answers from them. And then I go back into the interview when we sit down in front of the camera and I'll ask them similar questions to try and get to those answers again. Um, not always though, but at the same time, I, I'm always fishing for new information. So if I go in with 10 questions, I end up asking a hundred, you know, it's all about the follow. Uh, you know, so you ask a question, um, you know, what got you into star Wars in the first place, then you get an answer and then that answer will lead you down a whole nother path of questioning. Um, and then maybe like more people to interview almost. Uh, is that, yeah, did that ever definitely. happen? Like you're kind of leapfrogging from, from one interviewee sure. to, to the next. Sure. Definitely. Um, you know, you talk to someone, they give you some information you say, Oh, well, uh, tell me more about that. And they'll say, Oh, well really who you need to talk to is right. Whoever. Right. I'm sure uh, that went on that forever. <laughs> it can, it can. Um, but again, you know, you're just paying attention to what you're getting. And, and really the key, though, is to try and figure it out during the pre-interviews when you're yeah. just doing it over the phone. Because then if someone says, oh, you need to talk to this person, it's not like, oh, crap, I was, I was just in Boston four weeks ago. I guess now I got to go back, you right. know, or whatever. This so. time you figure it all out. You do all the phone calls and then you, you schedule your shoots. I didn't do that with Plastic Galaxy, unfortunately. Plastic Galaxy was a lot of, oh, I guess I'm going back to Cincinnati or, oh, I guess I'm going back to California. Oh, jeez. Um, and, and then with, I'm with sure that got very did. expensive. Man. It can. It adds up. I mean, you want to really try and avoid it. Yeah, I uh, can only imagine. But you're just traveling yourself. Are you taking any type of crew with you or... Uh, for Plastic Galaxy, it was mostly myself, um, and for a bunch of them, I traveled with a friend of mine named Carl Tate. Uh, Carl did a lot of the artwork that appears on, well, he did all the artwork that appeared on our DVD and all that, um, and then he did some of the graphic design that went into the movie itself, but he was an invaluable assistant as we were shooting. Um, poster as yeah, well? Did he, did he do that? Sorry? Did he do the poster as well? For the film, the what is the poster? Oh yeah, he did all the all the uh, physical artwork for the movie was Carl. Nice, I I really did. He designed our logo and stuff like that. Nice, very very cool. So you Uh, get all whereas animation like this, I just so I'm very proud of this one. Of um, that was that was uh, uh, Hammerhead stealing the 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 um, Millennium Falcon, Millennium Falcon, (laughs) which uh, was my very limited uh, After Effects skills at play. Ah, Okay. Nice. I thought that one came that one I'm happy with. There's some things in this movie that make me cringe when I look back at them. I mean, they don't seem to bug anyone else, but but I'll always I'll always like that one. Yeah. Always Inevitably be, that uh, happens with your with your own stuff, right? It's it's hard to, to rewatch old, like anything really. Um uh, so you get all this footage, you're editing it. Are you showing people while you're editing for like feedback or you kind of just got your some, head in the very, tunnel? Some, no, very trusted people get to see it early on. 
um, people who've kind of been involved in the project, um, like friends of mine, um, other collectors, things like that. Um, I didn't show it to any of the people who were in the movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd have a few people who I trusted to watch it early on. And then when I had about, at one point I had to do a convention and they asked if I could show any of it. And I put together like 13 minutes, um, of interesting footage. I showed that and sort of judged, you know, gauged people's feedback based on that. Okay. And then, um, there was a big collector event out in Seattle about a year before the movie was done. Not a year, must've been less. Uh, six months I don't know something like that um and I put together a 40 minute cut of the movie for that and we screened that in movie theater and that was actually pretty cool um oh, and great. again I was just kind of judging how people reacted to different parts and get a sense of what was working oh, that's what great wasn't. so you got to kind of like like live test it like with different a audiences bit, yeah. and I guess yeah, like very a, sympathetic audiences though. yeah yeah you're playing to the home team crowd a bit there right absolutely but, oh but, yeah uh, <laughs> definitely but that's who this movie is for, in a sense, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So I always uh, tell people that the movie is for um, fans of this stuff, but also for their significant other. So if they have a boyfriend <laughs> or girlfriend who is always like, why do you collect this stuff? They can be like, here, watch this. Right, right. Um, I know after watching the, the Toys That Made Us, my girlfriend was a little bit more uh, open to letting me put out a lot more of the toys and Lego I own. So, <laughs> Oh yeah. I mean, and I was, I was a producer on toys that made us. And for me, it was interesting to see the direction they went with the star Wars episode. Um, I, I consulted on that one. It's funny. That's one of the only episodes that I didn't do any shooting or interviewing for, but, really? um, yeah, but early on in the pre-production on that one, I consulted with them a lot and helped hook them up with people. Um, so I was really curious about where they take it. And I was really happy that our two, their their episode and my movie overlap, but have about 75% different information. I go a lot deeper into certain subjects. They had a few things that I wasn't able to get. So I feel like neither cannibalize each other. Yeah, uh, I think that's what's nice. great. Like I, I saw the toys that made us first, obviously, and then seeing your thing, it was like more of like an in-depth, if you like the Star Wars episode, like, this is the movie for yeah. you kind of thing, which, which is, which is great. Like have you've obviously, did they approach you for when they started yeah. making it? Like knowing you had made the, yeah. it's actually, there's a sort of a bit of a story there. Um, I, uh, I got a call when, when plastic galaxy first came out, I got a call from a guy named Brian Volkweiss and uh, I had no idea who he was. I just knew he was with a company called new way of entertainment. So I get him on the phone, call him back. And he goes, listen, man, I, I saw your movie and I loved it. Uh, we want to distribute it. I was like, oh, that's really awesome. I just signed a deal, though, with a company called Gravitas. And he goes, oh, oh. that sucks. I was like, oh, did I make a mistake? He goes, no, Gravitas is great. Um, you know, I'm just pissed we, we didn't get you first. So we start talking and it turns out we have a lot in common. He's a big Star Trek fan. He's a big fan of toys and all sorts of stuff. And... Uh, and he said, well, you know, maybe somewhere down the road we can do something together. I was like, great. So um, a number of a couple of years, so we stay in touch. Um, and he tells me he's got some project on the horizon they thought I might be interested in. And, you know, eventually we go back and forth. Nothing really happens. And one day he calls me up. He says, hey, listen, we're working on this show called The Toys That Made Us. Uh, it's all about toys. Uh, we're producing it. Uh, do you want to do you want to come on board and help out? 
I said, sure, you know, because it's crazy. I'd never done anything for like TV before. You know, the news, the the I've done a lot of broadcast news, but it was always for um, newspapers for their websites and things like that. You know, there's so much overlap these days, but I never done anything for TV. Okay. So it was like, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm absolutely on board. And he goes, great. Um, we want to bring you on as a consulting producer. And then that sort of grew into a much more active role where I was going out and shooting a lot of the interviews. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it worked out really well, um, but it just, you know, sort of came out of the blue, came out of this thing. So they they approached me because they liked what I had done with Plastic Galaxy. And uh, and then now it's sort of come full circle. I just did a movie called Eye of the Beholder, and it's about the art of Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, very and, cool. And uh, I worked on that with a couple friends, um, my two partners, Kelly Slagle and Seth Polanski. And we went to Brian and said, listen, we love what you've been doing with toys that made us. We want you to distribute this movie, uh, take a look at it. And he loved it. And now we signed with them. So, you know, these things always sort of come around, you know, every relationship you make, you just never know how it's going to yeah, exactly. pop up down the road. This business is so small. <laughs> it can be. Yeah. It can be. Um, and so much of it is luck. You know what I mean? Like I a hundred percent agree <laughs> stumbling into things and just leaving yourself open to the opportunities that I would could say come uh, luck and then nepotism or just knowing somebody <laughs> it's that's like 90% of the, the gigs that come my way or just opportunity just comes by either knowing somebody or yeah, just, just straight up luck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, so, yeah, you finished editing it. Like, do you have a big premiere uh, with Plastic Galaxy or do you start going out to like collector shows or Comic Cons and, and showing it off? Or what, what was the. Well, I wasn't entirely sure what to do. You know, I'd never done this before. So, yeah, um, no doubt. Daunting task. I yeah, I was like, well. It's not like this movie is going to play at Sundance or something like that. And it's not like it's not going really to be able to get Sundance, it. though, you know, like I get what you're saying, well, but it's not really that kind of movie. It's and there was no toys that made us yet, you know, so there was no like clear market for this kind of thing. Um, there weren't a lot of movies that had done deep dives into toys at this point. Um, I think the Masters of the Universe movie that these guys had done I think they came out right before Plastic Galaxy. Okay. Um, but there just wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot. So I really had no idea what to do with it. Um, so I just decided I would send it around to like nerd conventions, you know, like so Star Wars conventions. We, we showed uh, a slightly shorter version of it at Celebration. Oh, really? Uh, wow. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. Celebration 7, we showed part of it, um, most of it. And that was cool because I was with Gus Lopez, who's on the screen again, and Jim Swearingen and Chris Fawcett. Chris is someone else we interviewed for the movie. We did a little panel. So we showed it and did a little panel. And that was cool because some guy from Toys R Us was there and Jeffrey the Giraffe tweeted out, watching Plastic Galaxy, and I really love it or something like that. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, wow. But um, I had no idea that anyone from Toys R Us was there. So, um, But... Uh, and then I, I submitted it to Gen Con, the gaming convention. I sent it to them for their film festival and they accepted it. And then a couple other smaller conventions, but I really didn't know what to do with it after that. And that's when I got approached. Um, I knew I was going to make DVDs and I'd been selling the DVDs already. Uh, I set up an Amazon store and was selling them really well through Amazon, but I wasn't Just sure about why. Word of mouth at cons or? Yeah. Cons and Facebook groups and word of mouth through friends. I mean, the Star Wars community was really hungry at that point 
for something like this because there again there just wasn't anything. Yeah. It's it's not that mine was so special. It's just mine was all there all there was. Yeah, you're the only um, guy in the corner. Yeah, and there's some great books, awesome books. Steve Sansweet's uh, From Concept to Screen to Collectible is one of the absolute best and served as kind of a model for um, some of how I approach Plastic Galaxy. Okay. But there's no movies, there's no video content. So the DVDs are doing well, um, but I, I got approached by this company called Gravitas Ventures. They're a distribution company. They do digital distribution. Yeah, they're pretty and, uh, big time. Uh, yeah, they are. Um, and I, I hadn't heard of them, but I was able to research them very easily, which is always a good sign. They popped up over and over again with a lot of movies that seem to have some level of success. Do you go into uh, your first distribution deal with, with Gravitas and you don't have to deal with any shady companies with strange contracts well, and deals? I almost did. So I got really <laughs> lucky. Before, before Gravitas, I get this call from a company who... I don't even remember their name, and I would have no problem naming names, but I truly don't remember. <laughs> um, and they mostly distributed like B and C level science fiction and horror and stuff. And they were they did digital distribution and they did uh, DVDs. And they're like, we can get your DVD into big box stores. And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. And I'd already made my money back through selling DVDs on my own, so I was really looking at just gravy at this point. So I was like, well, how about? Um, they're like, listen, we can make this deal for you. We'll do digital. We'll do this. We'll do that. Um, the catch is you'll have to stop selling it on Amazon because you'll be competing directly with our vendors. I was like, well, okay, that kind of makes sense. I said, can I get an advance? You know, besides getting whatever royalty rate they were offering, which was mm. really low. Yeah. But they kept talking about how enthusiastic they were. And I was like, okay, well, if you're that enthusiastic, I want ten thousand dollars up front. That's and fair. they were like, uh, they were like, oh, uh, well, we're not sure we can do ten thousand. I was like, all right, well, and we talked a little. I said, okay, what about what about five thousand? That seems five thousand seems pretty cheap. If you're like, you guys should earn that back pretty quickly at the yeah. percentage you're keeping. So if you think there's any legs on this at all, five grand should be nothing. And That's they came back just with North America they, or just the states. Uh, I forget. I think it was North America. So I was thinking that'd be easy. And again, I had no idea what a good deal was. So I was just like, whatever, tossing numbers out there, because um, again, I'd made my money back. So I was like, whatever, I'll take. And I, I didn't have any expectations for the movie. That's the other thing. So to me, $5,000 was like, five, that would have been amazing. Yeah, five grand. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be getting anything out of this movie. You know, I didn't think it would have legs. I, I had no idea. And uh, they come back to me and they're not interested. They're like, well, we can't really do that much. How about 2400 or something oh, like that? Yeah. And I was like. At that point, I'd already had a conversation with Steve Sansweet, and I I will owe him forever for this. I hope he's listening. Um, he had told me, look, Brian, because he has sold a number of books, so I figured he might have some advice. He said, look, Brian, how long do you think your movie is going to really be sitting on the shelves at Best Buy? Yeah. You know, nobody's buying physical media like that anymore, and they've only got like 60 feet of shelf space how long do you think before you're kicked off by the next Marvel movie? Yeah, it's and exactly I was like, that. Really good point. Like, no one's going to care about my stupid little documentary, so I'm not going to make anything. And I'm going to be giving away my ability to sell it on Amazon, where I was doing really well, because I got to keep all the money. Exactly. Well, you know, most of it. Most of it yeah. So when they came back to me and they were like, well, how about 2400 or 2500 I was like, you know what? I make more than that selling it on Amazon in a year. So... And I have no idea how well this thing's going to do, but forget it. And I backed out. And that 
was the best decision ever made because it's a then tough decision to make though at the time right like if you don't you know what it wasn't though it wasn't no? because i was looking at, i was looking at the numbers i was making off amazon and i was realizing that my understanding of how people buy movies now uh was was wrong you know right. what I mean? Like, you don't need big box stores anymore. We were right on that cusp where nobody was buying physical media from those stores anymore. This was 2014 or so. Yeah. And it was basically toast. It was Everyone was buying stuff off Amazon. It was before streaming became super huge. Well, maybe it was huge, but people were still buying discs. Yeah. Um, oh, I just have to point out. So on the screen right now, that is the original model for the Ewok Village. And it's literally made out of sticks. It's crazy. <laughs> it's amazing. Um. But yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a tough decision because I saw how much I was making selling it on my own. I did the math and I said, you know what, as cool as it would be to have someone, quote unquote, distribute this thing. It's not that cool if by distribute they mean do nothing with it. Yeah, they just they they cast a big net, usually those companies. And then, yeah. they, they have a, a minimum guarantee that they put those DVDs in the, in those box stores. They'll put one or two and they might yep. make that five grand. And you'll never see any of that, right? And then exactly. but and they you're do that in for five years. Exactly. And they'll do they'll do that like a hundred times and they'll do it to everybody. So yeah, we yeah. I, I've experienced the, the shady end of the distribution world uh, firsthand terribly. So <laughs> to it's, uh, it's to hear tough. a success story right out the gate, it, it makes me very happy. <laughs> Well, again, you know, we talk about luck. You know, I, I decided it wasn't worth it. I figured I'd have, you know, that'd be it. I was like, well, if that's what the deals look like, screw it. It is yeah. what it is. And then Gravitas came knocking. And because I didn't sign some terrible deal with this other company, I was good to go when Gravitas came on. Oh, here's more of my awesome animation. Ah, that's great. <laughs> Man, I, love I was it. winging it. I was like, so my wife does animation for a living. She's oh, a, really? After Effects, she's an After Effects artist. But I couldn't get her to help me on this because she was in the middle of like a lot of work and I couldn't afford to pay her enough to drag her away from it. So oh, I had cool. to do it all myself. And some of it, I don't know, I'm I'm kind of proud of it. But she looks at it. She's like, oh, yeah, that's that's great, Brian. Yeah, taps <laughs> you like, on the head. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm like, let me have this. Come on. That's cool. I uh, in Ottawa here, I have a few friends that work in the animation industry uh -huh. as well. It's There's a lot of people like small stuff that comes up here that gets done uh, animation wise in Ottawa for whatever reason. But uh, yeah, so uh, that's pretty cool. Um, so you sign with Gravitas. They're yep. like, are they signing like worldwide? Are you sending this off everywhere? Are yeah, they it's worldwide. It's everything except physical. I carved out physical because I wanted to keep selling copies on Amazon because I just, it was doing so well. Did they have um, any pushback with that or they were they no. fine? No. no, they were cool with it. Um, you know, eventually those sales petered off. So now, like, I let it go out of print um, because it just wasn't selling enough because everyone watches it through streaming, you know. So, That's just um, but, you know, we moved a lot. We we sold uh, we sold many thousands of copies. That's, that's <laughs> great, man. That's great. Yeah, I can't complain. It, it's it did better than I ever, ever, ever dreamed. You know, you go into this thing for fun. You know, I wanted it. I wanted it to make back what I spent, which wasn't very much. I mean, the budget for this it was tiny. Um, and I never mind discussing it. I mean, I spent maybe fifteen thousand bucks making this thing. That's it. Nine eh? of which, or seven or eight of which, was Kickstarter. 
Oh, wow. So yeah. So yeah. talk about the Kickstarter campaign and, and when did you yeah. decide to do that? And what the was... Kickstarter campaign was done when I, I thought it would be done. So I thought the movie would be done something like December of 2012. So I did a Kickstarter campaign a few months before that. And it was mostly to raise what I thought would be finishing funds. Okay. Did you have and footage shot? Like, did you have... Most of the footage... Oh, yeah. Most of the footage was... A lot of the footage was in the can. Okay. Um, I did some... I ended up doing some late, late, late edition interviews. But um, generally speaking, I felt like a bulk of the footage was in the can. Um, which tells you... I mean, this thing came out in 2014. So it tells you how long it took me to edit this thing. Yeah, I can... Uh, forever. Only, yeah. Um, and part of that was like four months of me just having to step away or I would have thrown my computer through a window. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was hellish when there's no one helping you. Um, it's such a hard thing to edit a documentary, but I, uh, so I thought it would be finishing funds <laughs> and then I just, you know, started editing and, and yeah, it paid for that, you know, my time and stuff like that and paid for some assets I needed to buy, but it also paid for more traveling that I ended up doing more shooting. Um, Oh God! Here's the the naked monkey, right? Uh, making it PG thirteen. Yes. Um, the I made that thing myself. Really? My wife. She's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "You really don't want to know. Trust me. Trust this'll, me. This will all um, work out. Don't worry." I'm giving a monkey a peanut, and let's just leave it at that. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah. So the Kickstarter. So we raised about nine thousand bucks, which was way more than I I thought I needed. It turned out to be actually <laughs> about how much I needed. So that worked out well. Um, and, uh, I didn't really know what I was doing with Kickstarter. I did not have the network in place that you really need to build when you're going to do a Kickstarter campaign to get the most out of it. Yeah. Um, so kind of early days in Kickstarter when people were not donating tons of money yet. Um, we made some really cool t-shirts. So that was part of our rewards. And of course, copies of the movie, um, so people love that. Um, the downside is when you start to take a long time to get the movie finished, uh, people get a little bit aggressive in there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Eh? You know, where's the movie? Why isn't it done yet? Why aren't we getting daily updates? It's like, well, you're not getting daily updates because I'm working on the movie and I'm working on the movie because it's not done yet. And it's not done yet because I want to give you something really good. And that takes time. Yeah. Uh, that, that's people tough for back. people to to you know, get behind sometimes if they're not seeing any progress. And it's also building a Kickstarter campaign. Like yep. a lot of people have that all built going in. We have our like weekly updates of what we're sending people and that donated or whatever. But did you factor yeah. in the shirt costs with what you yes. had to raise or? Yeah, I did. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, I raised so much more than I thought I needed that that ended up not being a problem. Turned out people really liked those shirts. Okay, <laughs> was, well, that's shirts. good. Nobody knew if the movie would be good or not, but man, we came up with some pretty sweet shirts. Carl Carl Tate, who I mentioned earlier, did all the art for it based off of designs that I came up with um, and ideas. And they played off a lot of the old school stuff. So we made some awesome stuff. If that's my only legacy, I made some awesome Star Wars bootleg T-shirts. <laughs> I will, I will, I would die a happy person because. I was very proud of those shirts. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, but yes. yeah, so the Kickstarter, we learned a lot from it though. And when we did Kickstarter for Eye of the Beholder, um, my partners and I, um, Kelly and Seth, we really 
we spent months leading up to it, prepping people, getting them ready for this thing so they knew it was coming. And when we launched, we we raised a lot more money than I did for Plastic Galaxy. Oh, that's great. Did, uh, yeah. did When you made um, Eye of the Beholder, did you go mm. into that with no distribution deal? Did you talk to anybody yeah. beforehand, or you just try to make it independent on your own? We just made it on our own. And honestly, I... I I am weirdly and naively confident about these things in the sense that I said, you know what? I bet you we can sell this. I bet you someone's going to take it, whether it's Gravitas or somebody else. Um, I think it'll happen because I think we have a subject that people are interested in and I think we'll make a great movie. So, you know, we'll just worry about it when time comes. It's the same. I guess you had, I don't know if you thought this way, but it was the same thought process really is the star wars toys like nobody's really made anything <laughs> on that big of a scale for D art or D. like i guess did critical role come out yet was that like a thing when you started production well, or yeah critical role was a thing but critical role is like you're watching them play it's not about the history yeah. of D. it's not a documentary it's it's like watching a baseball game you know yeah uh, or hockey or something like that um and uh, so nobody had really I well, here's the thing there. I knew that there were some things in the works about the history of D&D, but I also knew there was nothing in the work at the time about the art. And oh. there had been books published about the history of D&D and about role playing games in general, but very little zeroed in on the art. So I knew there was a niche that we would be filling. And I knew there was an audience out there who cares about this art the way I cared about the art. So I was confident that that we'd have something marketable um but there was not enough weight there behind it for us to be able to pre-sell it or anything like that okay um or to get a studio to back us and say look we'll give you a ton of money go make this movie um which is fine you know i didn't expect that to be the case i figured we'd do really well at the kickstarter um and i figured we'd have a good audience and i figured i don't know yeah, like, I mean, you like, have to be naively optimistic about this. Stuff. Oh, 100 percent. That's the only way you can can make can make movies in general yeah. is is a bit of like confidence that is not grounded in any real reality and no. being naive. And yeah, that's, that's Look, the only you jump out of the airplane and you just say it'll work out. Exactly. Just like Cap. There'll be the something shield. there to catch. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's that's the way you got to go into a lot of production. As much planning as you always try and do with productions, sure. like I do more narrative stuff. But yeah, like you can plan, plan, plan all you want, but then you know every now and then a stick gets thrown in your spokes and you go over the handlebars and you got to figure out how to land. <laughs> but uh, oh, absolutely, there's a lot of that. Yeah, um, so uh, this what, movie and that and the new movie. What uh, what were some of the hurdles? Did you ever have like a moment where you thought like this is never going to get done? Like <laughs> I'm just giving up. Yeah, I, I'm going to I'm going to Florida. I'm just I'm done. The biggest, honestly, the biggest hurdle was editing Plastic Galaxy. It was um, so overwhelming. Um, just trying to figure out what the story, like I knew the gist of it, but knowing the gist of your story and knowing how to construct it out of what you've got and figuring out the order that it's going to unfold and just understanding the sheer volume of footage that you have. How many hours um, of footage do, do you think you, you had? I don't remember at this point, but it had to have been, God, I had to have had at least... 40, 50 hours of footage, probably. Wow. 
that's, that's probably a lot. more. I mean, my shoot ratio was, uh, yeah. I mean, if I was shooting on tape, I'd have gone broke, you know, <laughs> but luckily it was all digital at that point. So it works out, but it was, uh, it was ridiculously overshot, but it, part of it is you don't know what you're going to get because I didn't do as much pre-production as I should have. Right. So you kind of just go after everything and hope for the best. Um, but then you start thinking about all the animation you have to do and all the graphics you have to do and all the assets you have to gather, you know, these things like right now you're seeing, um, the planogram and then you're seeing this display box and all that stuff. I had to construct all of that. And it just started to feel like an impossible task after a while. Um, but I also knew I was going to do it no matter what this thing was getting done. There was absolutely no way I was going to have spent that much time and not create something that, forget about it just being done that I wasn't proud of. So, right. you know, you fight through it. You know, you take a couple months off, you clear head, you ignore the people who are freaking out on Kickstarter, <laughs> you know, you, you drink heavily, you contemplate a <laughs> drug addiction, right. whatever, whatever it takes. You know, you, you start like, you know, intravenously taking tiger blood or whatever, right. whatever you need to do to get your head on straight. And then you dive back in and you just do it. And, uh, and uh, yeah. But the production, from production, there were no real huge hurdles. It actually, going and traveling and shooting um, and meeting these people that was... must have been probably the most fun part. Or... Oh, yeah, it was a blast. Um, and I'm really good friends with a lot of these people today. Um, a lot of the people I interviewed, I'm still in touch with. Um, not just in touch with, there's some I, I see regularly. I talk on the phone with all the time. I travel to conventions with. Oh, that's um, great. So I, some of my best friends in the world were made as I made this movie and um, it's like, it's still, <clears throat> it's still screening places too. Right. Cause obviously like I just saw it's this. still on streaming services. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, it's screening like at, at festivals oh. and cons and whatnot. Right. Occasionally. So, yeah. Pensacon was the first one in a while. Um, because I don't really, uh, I don't really push it much anymore. It, it screens at Gen Con as well, but we get very few people who actually come in to watch it. Yeah, but um, five years later, like, that's that's to be sort of expected, but yeah. Totally. And it's not quite the right audience for it. It's a gaming convention, not a Star Wars convention. So it's, uh, but it, it still has a, a really strong life and streaming, which again, five years later amazes me. Yeah, um, I mean, I think like that watching. makes sense, though, right? Because people find Toys That Made Us, then they might yeah. look you up after and then find this. And, I mean, it is on Amazon Prime, right? So yep. they can yep. just check it out there. Prime's blowing up right now, which yeah. is great. So, uh, like, yeah, it's awesome for, for no, like, it's indie really... guys like us. Like, another well, competitor for, for Netflix or iTunes. Yeah. Well, what's really crazy for me to me is that um, they're fans of this movie. You know what I mean? Like, like Plastic Galaxy isn't the important thing. Star Wars is the important thing. I'm just talking about Star Wars. Right. But there will be people who, who, you know, like I, I sold a bunch of the toys that I used in the movie. Um, I figured, you know people would want them did your wife um, make you sell them or no 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 nothing like that i just <laughs> i decided to sell them you know i was raising money for the next movie and i figured it's okay i can let these go i've kept a few things from making the movie as souvenirs and memories and i have, I have certain star wars toys that i keep just as part of my collection but i had a lot of stuff that i wanted to sell and okay. <laughs> like a year after i sold them um 
some of them reached the secondary market where people were reselling them and they got hundreds of dollars for them. Like, you know, they, they put them in acrylic cases with the little certificate of authenticity that I had made when I first sold them. And they're being sold as the toys from plastic galaxy. And that increased their value. And that blew my mind. I, I, I was like, I was like, no. I, I want those. No I, you want royalties off that toy money? Nah, <laughs> I don't even care about that. It's more just the the amazement that people care enough, and and the sort of honor that I feel that people care enough about my my movie. Yeah, it's got to feel good. See, it has value. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm so appreciative that uh, people think it's interesting enough to that they care uh, on that level. It's it's amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. I see your like little map here shouting out Canada on the this map. This is not my yeah, this is this is a friend of mine, Stephen Baker, did this animation. Um uh, that was a little bit beyond my ability. <laughs> that that's where I started to hit my uh my my limit. See, I got uh, my start in stuff like that, after effects and special effects, graphics, all that's that stuff before other things. Yeah. But uh like, if I couldn't do it in, I was using Final Cut Pro 7 at the time to edit this. And if I couldn't do it in Final Cut Pro, like all that stuff you just saw with the cards moving around and stuff, that I did in Final Cut Pro because it had pretty good motion control. Yeah. And then it also had really good like blur effects and things like that. So that I could do. But anything where it was like real, like the graphics that had to be generated for that map and everything else, that was, I was like, okay, forget it. I can't. After <laughs> it's like beyond or... my, yeah. beyond my abilities. Yeah. So um, yeah, so this movie's obviously had like like a huge life after the fact, and and you obviously got to travel like around. Did you get to travel like I guess all around the world showing this off like before and after like uh, you got the distribution deal? Like, did Gravitas um, put a bunch of money into marketing or? No, um, marketing was all me. Uh, Gravitas didn't really cover any marketing. They didn't really cover. Uh, they just got it onto streaming onto digital services. It, it's. Um, and, and they did a great job with that. So I really can't complain. They, they got this thing on, it was on Hulu for a while. It was on, you know, prime and all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's international. It's in other countries on, on, uh, streaming services only in those countries. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, and it's much more than I could have done on my own. It was much more than I thought could be done. And they really did a great job of finding those opportunities. Um, but one thing they didn't really do is a lot of marketing or press. Um, you know, my experience with, uh, Nacelle, Nacelle is the company that does toys that made us and they are the company that carries the new movie. They've been fantastic about generating press for the new movie, um, as well as getting it into all sorts of streaming services. Um, so it's, it's been interesting to see how the two companies approach it. Um, to market it, you know, I traveled a little around the country. I didn't travel around the world to do it, um, you know, because I was on a limited budget, yeah. um, my own budget. Um, but, um, but you know, you go to conventions, you talk it up, you do what you can. Um, we made a lot of swag that we would hand out at conventions, buttons and things like that. That went a and long just way. Kind of, uh, yeah, it does, because people then wear them, and then other people come up to them and ask, oh, where'd you get that cool button? Right, right. Um, but in terms of, like, uh, online marketing, Facebook, Twitter, uh-huh. Instagram, any of that, were you doing, like, promoted ads? Yeah, or I, would, just I do- would do Facebook ads and things like that. You know, I it took me forever to get involved with Twitter and Instagram. Um, 
there wasn't much Instagram at the time. Um, I don't know when Instagram started, but it was after Plastic Galaxy came out. Um, and then Twitter, I was just never really on it. Um, it wasn't until the new movie, until um, Eye of the Beholder, that Instagram and Twitter became a big part of our social media uh, campaigns, which is probably a mistake. I probably should have done more of it for Plastic Galaxy, but uh, for me, it was mostly Facebook, which carried a little more weight at the time. People had not done the mass migrations to Twitter and Instagram yet. Right, yeah. um, so I did a lot of Facebook ads, you know, and stuff like that, and a lot of just cross-posting in Star Wars groups and and things like that. Um, Were you able to track just, any of those sales, like, uh, and, like, you know, like, okay, this type of ad is working or this isn't working? Nah, or it was just nah, kind of like throw, throw it in the hole and hope kind of thing, or? Yeah, pretty much, you know. Um, it's, here's the thing. We live in this era where it's great for filmmakers in the sense that the equipment has become really affordable, like really yeah. high end equipment. And you really affordable. too, yeah. Yeah, and we found we have ways of getting our movies out there now. There's all these on-demand services, Vimeo on-demand, YouTube on-demand, and then you have things like Amazon Prime, and then you have Vudu and, and Pluto and all these other companies. Yeah. So there's all these opportunities for filmmakers. But what it means is we also have to act as marketers we also have to act as our PR people. We also have to act as all these different things that a lot of us are not trained to do. No. And so there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so much time to spend doing it. And that's where things start to fall apart a little. So Facebook ads and all that stuff and tracking all that stuff, that's just starting to drift way too far outside of my um, area of experience. Um, so that's the, the downside of all this. You know, one of the things I've been really happy about with, with Nacelle, uh, is that they can handle the press, you know, um, we still handle our online presence, you know, any ads that we made for the new movie, any, any, uh, graphics, anything like that I did myself. Um, but I still feel like there's some support there behind us who, who can help navigate all that stuff or guide you um, a little bit in the right direction yeah and sure. offer advice and and just i can bounce ideas off of and they're really there for me um to do that uh for my partners and i so it, it makes it easier but there's still a lot on your shoulders as an independent filmmaker today if you want to push as hard as you can if you want to take advantage of all this stuff you have to be prepared to learn how to do that stuff but it's not easy no also just knowing how a lot of their Facebook algorithms or Instagram algorithms work with how much time you actually spend interacting with the app. That's yeah. what I've kind of come across. I have friends and family in social media that, that do like promotion for bigger companies. And like, I obviously right. know some other kind of YouTube people too, that, you know, they, they have decent followings and their whole like, you know, back end of how they think about like, okay, what kind of a still are we going to put? What color is a still? going to be for the thumbnail and the the shape of the thumbnail or all these types of things and like how Facebook will favor videos that are you know so long rather than different types and who you interact with online it's it's a it's a, it's a big rabbit hole <laughs> to go down you know you can kind of lose a lot of time like just thinking about well, that's that. what you have to ask yourself are the benefits are the benefits for your project worth the expenditure of time and maybe the answer is yes and you still can't do anything about it but sometimes the answer is no because yeah. your project isn't big enough to 
take full advantage of it the way it could if you were doing like, you know, if you made the Avengers, you know, yeah. or whatever. Um, and, and sometimes you just say, well, maybe it is worth it, but I just, the reality is I can't do it. I, no. I, I don't have time or I don't have the understanding, you know, digging into Facebook's algorithms and stuff like that is a whole nother science um, that uh, I'd rather focus on my, my filmmaking abilities. You know what I mean? Like I look at Plastic Galaxy now and there's a lot I like about it, but there are a lot of sort of technical things that I would absolutely do different. Um, things that at the time I didn't fully understand, you know, having to do with the way the cameras work and the way lenses work and uh, depth of field and, and um, you know, lens length and things like that, that I look at, it's like, I'd rather develop those skills, you know, stuff that yeah, I understand now totally. much more intrinsically. Did you, um, uh, did you own all your gear or did you rent every time? I you did. No, I owned it. Um, I owned it and had a few things that I was kind of permanently borrowing from a place that I was working at the time. Oh, um, that's always. But good. it wasn't the best equipment. It was a Sony. Um, uh, it was basically an all-in-one. Like no, well, it was a, it was an HD camera, but it was uh, like an all-in-one. It was like an ENG camera, electronic oh, news okay. camera. So yeah, yeah. you couldn't swap out lenses. You couldn't do it. So on one hand, it had an amazing zoom. The zoom was something <laughs> like, like fifteen to three hundred or whatever, some crazy zoom. But the aperture was something like uh, I think it went from a one eight to like a uh, probably like a five six or something oh, at its full zoom. Yeah. Um, so you had a, you didn't have as much control over that. It did not shoot log footage. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if your listeners how how technical you want to get, but you know, I shoot log now, which is a very you get the most out of the camera. You get the most dynamic range. You get the most color space out of it yeah. and everything else. This camera couldn't do that. Um, no. This camera couldn't shoot 10 bit HD. It was shooting 8 bit HD. Mm. It was shooting AVC HD, um, which is a, a packaging for your footage that compresses the hell out of it. So, all these weird little things that I didn't understand at the time, but also didn't have anything I could have done about it if I did understand it. Right, I had the equipment right. I had. So, you just went um, in cold, not really knowing a ton about like gear? No, no, no. And... I, knew, I knew some stuff about that. You know, I had been shooting news. But it wasn't stuff that I had to really focus as much on. Right. Um, I was much more concerned with things like framing and, and stuff like that and lighting it well and, and whatever. Um, you know, I was shooting in a Rec. 709 color space, which meant when the time came to color correct, you're, you're much more limited. Yeah. Well, like, well, yeah, you're in well, within the bracket for broadcast. But yeah. Well, you are. But that assumes you exposed it properly and that it <laughs> that assumes that you white balanced everything properly. If you didn't mm -hmm. and you need to try and fix any of that in post, you have a lot less wiggle room because your curves are all burned in yeah. to the footage. You know, did you uh, uh, did you like get a grade done or you just kind of do it yourself? And I did it myself. In Final I did Cut? it myself. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like mix yeah. and music and all that. Like what, what did you what did you do? Uh, there? I went to a friend. I went to a musician friend of mine and I licensed all the music from him. Um, so everything in this is his. I remixed myself um, the opening song, um, Rockets, because um, the track he gave me was good, but it wasn't working quite for what I needed it to do. So he gave me permission to remix it um, and and build some stuff out of it. Um, so that guy right there with the big beard on camera, okay. he's a documentary maker that I met at this convention, Fan Days in Texas. Uh, he's a guy named Jonathan Robinson who afterwards we were talking, turns out he's a filmmaker. He lives down in, in Louisiana. 
he's in the film industry there. He's he's a, a second AC. Um, he's worked on a lot of stuff like True Blood and all sorts of other things. And then he made this awesome documentary about um, the filming of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's called oh, Who wow. Are You People? Oh, wow. It's so good. I it's, love that it movie. It focuses on all the extras and all the people who are in the little towns where they film this movie and who got uh, roped into the movie. It. It's so cool. It's so much fun. Anyway, so shout out to Jonathan. Nate, but, um, to get him on the show. But yeah, you know, it's just like I was saying, it, it, you're always learning. And I went into this. I had experience shooting news and all that stuff, but but the. I didn't have it at the depth I thought. I did the color grade myself. I did the editing myself. I did the music. Oh, the music. Yeah, I got it from a friend of mine, um, a guy named Chris Iannuzzi, who uh, has a project called iSynthesis, and it's electronic music and stuff. And he's great. He's been doing it for decades. I mean, oh, the man is perfect. monster. He's so good. Yeah. But he had some stuff he let me use. Um, did you have music while you were editing, or did you? Was that like a fun no, stage? No, I had no idea what I was gonna do. I had no idea what I was gonna it's do. It's tough watching an uh, edit without music sometimes. I agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, and I went back and tweaked a lot of things once I got music. Yeah. Um, you know, we had music somewhat early on, but not super early on. And you know, did you run definitely. into like once you got the deal with Gravitas? Did you run into any QC problems like when like you know, you, you did you tell them like, hey, I did everything myself and they might have been like, oh, uh, we might have some issues with QC or did did you bump into anything there or? No, they just they just asked. I mean, no, they, they just asked for the files. I gave it to them. Well, what you do is you submit your files to a company and they do the exports. Yeah. So even though ultimately what they want is an H.264 file, which I can do myself, they want to get them from these other companies that specialize in it so they can whatever. So. Uh, I submitted my ProRes files to these companies. They ran it. They didn't run into any QC issues, and uh, that was That's that. Great. That's great. <laughs> I was, frankly, I'm a little amazed. And now that now that you're asking me, I'm like, oh my god, I really snuck past there. Yeah, and didn't we, have any trouble. I've submitted like 4K ProRes stuff before, and then they'll like zero in on one frame and be like, this frame has this one artifact in the top right corner. Oh. Can we get that frame replaced, please? So, yeah, we didn't have that problem with the new movie either. I mean, we shot the new movie in HD. Uh, we didn't shoot it 4K because um, the ultimate release is in HD. So, yeah, you know, you we just, just it worked out over um, for a dock. Well, it lets you reframe. That's the one useful thing. Or if you only have one camera, get it right on the first time. <laughs> well, but let's yeah, say know. you have one camera on a shoot and you need to cover an edit. You yeah. don't have B-roll. So you do a punch in. You can get away with punching in maybe 20% HD and going yeah, over, yeah. you know, 15, 20%. But if you shoot it in 4K, no, you, you can go over it oh, yeah, you can 300% percent and not run into any problems. So, uh, and occasionally some of my framing, I'd look at it afterwards and be like, oh, let's just nudge that a little bit. Right, I'm not right. sure what happened, but no, it looked better. That's, that's what happens, um, right? But... Uh, the new movie, we didn't run in any QC problems either, which, again, slightly amazing. Well, actually, I take that back. There is one issue having to do with our placement of lower thirds. Uh, um, okay. And we had to redo all of them because they were too close to uh, outside of title safe. So whatever. So all the not, not a big stuff you learned on Plastic Galaxy, like were you able to apply a lot of that to Eye of the Beholder or was it all like a whole new ball game? Like was it easier going into Eye of the Beholder with having done oh, this? Yeah. Or? 
Definitely, definitely. Um, also, working with partners who had filmmaking experience doing narrative films, uh, Seth and Kelly. Kelly's a director and producer, and she was our editor on the new movie as well. She uh, she brought a a different way of thinking about filmmaking to this project than I did because I'm coming at it from a documentary and a journalism point of view, um, and because of that, it it change the way we approach things a little bit at least. Um, and, and that worked out really well. You know, it, 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 we avoided a lot of mistakes that I made making plastic galaxy. The biggest was Kelly edited the thing. Yeah. So it didn't take a zillion Probably years. I mean, she has felt fast. good not having to worry about the, the editing. This For me time. it did, but Kelly, you know, it's a lot of pressure on her. So, and Definitely. it's not like I just gave her the footage and walked away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, you know, I'm there for the, kind of story editing. So she would edit together chunks, then we'd look at it, discuss it, um, make notes, make changes. But um, the biggest thing is it just went faster because she's just was more yeah. focused. Yeah, and, and it's like her job too, right? So Yeah, well, she co-directed it with me as well. So oh, she was great. familiar with what we got. Um, she and Seth are both co-producers on it with me. So, you know, we went in as a... a triumvirate you know mm. um <laughs> great word choice and uh, well you know um it made it work well so but yeah. we def i definitely learned from mistakes i made the first time as that's well as other experiences i had like toys that made us and everything else yeah that's great well we got credit roll here on, on the film yeah. so people can check out uh this film and uh, your new film, Eye of the Beholder, on iTunes or, and Amazon or wherever they get like any type of other streaming services, I'm assuming, PlayStation, Xbox, and all yep, those great spots. Yep. And, Both uh, movies are on Amazon, iTunes, and all over the place. And yep. uh, people can find you on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I'm assuming? Yeah, Facebook for Plastic Galaxy. It's just uh, Plastic Galaxy Movie. Um, for Eye of the Beholder, if that's their jam, they can find us at Eye of the Beholder Movie. Um, there's no Twitter or Instagram for Plastic Galaxy, so if they're into the Dungeons and Dragons stuff, we're I underscore movie on Twitter and I of the Beholder movie on Instagram. And then there are websites, you know, remember those? People used to go to websites. We have websites. <laughs> <laughs> PlasticGalaxyMovie.net? No, PlasticGalaxyMovie.com. Um, it's been a while. Plastic PlasticGalaxyMovie.com <laughs> and I of the Beholder movie. And uh, people can can find you on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or uh, my, I you know the the I have no personal Twitter, I have no personal Instagram. It's just through through the movie, oh, um, ghost, and Facebook. Well, you know, it's in Facebook. <laughs> you know, I'm just I'm just me on Facebook, man. I'm just Brian Stillman. Yeah, that's great. I don't man. have anything interesting to say. Yeah, <laughs> I rarely post on Facebook. Movies stuff. are more fun. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Brian. And, uh, like, uh, hopefully we can have you on again sometime and talk about eye of the beholder. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. It was interesting sort of going back over some of these memories. It's been so long hopefully, since I've had uh, to really think about it. Hopefully you didn't it's sweat fun. too much through it. No, no, it was a lot of fun. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Lost Commentary, on Instagram at Raiders of the Lost Commentary, and like us on Facebook. I'll be back.